Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we are going to be talking about every person's favorite topic in the world, and that is money. Money, 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 money. Oh, I thought you were going to do it, Nick. Uh, oh, you left me a Money, hang. money, money, money. <laughs> and uh, to do that, we have a very special guest, a uh, friend of the podcast, friend of TV Calling, a good friend of mine, Keon Kim. Hey. Hey, Keon. How's it going? How's it going? <laughs> First thing I want to say is I'm not rich, so don't rob me. <laughs> <laughs> So before we begin, uh, we did want to make uh, a little disclaimer. This podcast is not FCC, FDA, FBI regulated in any capacity. <laughs> so feel free to disregard any advice uh, or thoughts that we uh, give out about investment. Definitely. And don't do anything that we say in this podcast. Uh, and if you do, uh, please don't blame us for any money missing. Do not sue us for your bad investments. We yeah. are not professionals. But if you make money, I get 10%. <laughs> <laughs> that's, how, that's how it works. <laughs> that's how it works, right? <laughs> Yeah, so welcome to the podcast, Keong. And do you just want to tell us a quick little bit about yourself? Where do you come from? What's your kind of, you know, your background, writer, etc.? I've been trying to become a TV writer. I was in a couple of the fellowships. I was in Nickelodeon, NBC. I was in the CAM program. My full-time day job, I've been working as a graphic designer for 10, 15 years. So it's steady income, which is nice, but not I know not everyone has that. So let's dig in and talk about the, um, the first step, I feel like, in money management, which is just simply budgeting and managing the money you already have. Um, so, Keon, why do you think people should manage their money or have a budget? I think money affects everyone, like, since you're born until you die. Well, I guess not when you're born, but your parents' money will affect you. And it's a skill that you'll use literally until you die for every decision. And especially for creative people that don't, that might not have steady incomes, it becomes more important to manage what you do have so that you can, you know, pay the rent and survive and eat and also like take classes and go to Austin Film Festival or whatever it is, make short films. Um, you need money besides just basic uh, living expenses. You can't avoid it. So you might as well get good at it. It'll offer you more flexibility and freedom for uh, your decision making. And what are some of like the most basic fundaments of managing your money? What's the 101? I think the first thing I tell my friends is that they have to track their money. The money coming in is not that hard to track as most people get a paycheck once every two weeks, but the money going out, like every day you're using money. I would track every dollar that you spend for months like I would say like two, three months just to see the patterns of how you're spending money. I was telling you earlier, um, one of my old coworkers, she got some app to, to help track her expenses. And she realized she was spending like over $800 a month on clothes. And she had wow. no idea. <laughs> That's $9,600. That's almost $10,000 a year. And she just had no clue. So, the, so once you inform yourself with that knowledge... Then you can make smarter decisions about how you want to spend your money, what's important to you. So you feel like the, the number one step is like figuring out, like having knowledge of the money stream. Yeah, you, you, like you have to know what the status quo is. So you have to see um, where you are. And you can't just do it for like a week or a month because some things get billed like monthly or quarterly or even further apart, like in certain insurance things, you know, it's not every two weeks. How do you track that that aspect? Of, so uh, I life? love uh, mint.com, which is totally free. I know some people have some concerns about security but for me like i researched a bunch of different programs and ways to keep track of my expenses and that was by far the, the best and easiest because i'm really lazy so it'll just automatically figure out based on your spending patterns like how to categorize these things can you talk a little bit about how mint works and what you get out of it so mint works by you enter in your different bank accounts and credit card information and you link it up to those sites and then instead of checking each statement 
um, for each credit card at the end of the month, it'll just compile all of them into one stream for you. So I actually found a bunch of fraudulent charges because I would review my mint statement every, you know, couple of weeks or whatever. And I noticed these things and it's easier just because it's one place and uh, centralized. It's good for credit card stuff. I know some people don't like to use their credit cards, like especially if they have bad credit or, you know, they might not have enough uh, credit line. Some people like spending cash. But Mint can also track cash. It's just that you have to enter in all that information manually. Do you feel there are any special categories that people should watch out for? What are like the biggest budget mistakes that you find people making? Well, I think people focus a lot on small things like not drinking more Starbucks, like cutting back on small things. But it should be the reverse. I really feel like people should focus on the biggest expenses first. So that would be living expenses like your housing. So your rent is probably going to be your biggest expense and then your car payments and then maybe like something like health insurance or student loans. So I would square away those things first and then figure out the smaller things. And the food is obviously a big one and that's more flexible. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like the general advice is housing should be a third of your paycheck. Right. But in LA, housing is so expensive. Yeah, I forgot what the percentage was of housing. Like more uh, people spend like upwards of 50% of their income on housing. And that's Mm. huge. That is huge. And, And given that you don't necessarily have enough money left over beyond the necessities, you don't really have money to spend for entertainment or drinks or anything like that. So how do you feel people in the lower level positions, you know, assistants, like those Mm -hmm. kinds of people who need networking to survive and build themselves up? How do you think people should approach that angle? I would say roommates if you have to. (laughs) I mean, when I when I graduated college, I was making like $20,000 as a mail clerk. And I still like put money away in my 401 and still saved up like, you know, several months of cash just because I just turned my expenses. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have well, there were no iPhones back then. Thank God. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you just have to, you know, make sacrifices and make these decisions about what's important to you. So if the short term thing of like going out to a steak dinner is more important than like long term stuff, I mean, I would reconsider your values. And uh, I feel like credit cards are a big issue for a lot of people. What are your thoughts on on using those appropriately? Yeah, so I actually like credit cards because it goes through Mint and then everything is trackable and it's taken care of automatically by Mint. And if I keep if I just use cash, I'll forget like how that gets spent. I actually don't like to use cash. And then by using your credit card more, as long as you pay it off regularly and you don't get this huge debt, then that helps build your credit score, which will help later on when you need a loan with a lower interest rate. Yeah, I think a lot of people uh, underestimate the power of credit cards, not in the sense that uh, they're going to ruin you financially uh, because they can if you, if you don't pay them on time. But uh, a lot of the better ones, let's say even the Amazon credit card, they give you points. Right. I've had that uh, for over refunds, yeah. yeah, and refunds and things like that for specific items that you purchase. And there is uh, such a thing as churning. I don't know if you've heard of the term. But the, the, the concept of credit card churning, as in C-H-U-R-N-I-N-G, again, this is not something I would definitely recommend, but some people have a bunch of credit cards and then they, they use them to maximize the points that they get out of them, either by using one on top of the other or things mm-hmm. like that. And they get discounts on uh, air miles or uh, right. airplanes or t- tickets or anything like that. And so I think there's definitely a value if you're, again, financially secure on the level of you can get a credit card uh, and you don't necessarily have 50 of them, then I think there is a value in looking at credit cards that are 
giving you positives instead of just the basics of, oh, I can like spend X amount of money from it, but really also give you, you know, $3 off of whatever it is, the Amazon purchase mm-hmm. or 10% of cash back from the, the whatever online purchases you make. For those who don't know, what is like the basics of using a credit card? Well, should you never leave a balance on it at the end of the month? Should you make a minimum payment? Like what is the, the best operating procedure? Not even the credit card. It's just before you even buy something, it's can you afford this right now? Like I don't buy anything unless I could pay for all of it. Um, I mean, other than like my car. Um, and so if it's something that I can't afford, then I just don't buy it, whether it's cash or card. If it is something I could afford, I'll put it on my credit card and then try to pay off maybe the whole monthly statement or close to it because um, I don't want to pay interest, mm-hmm. which is like what, 14, 15% if you're, yeah. if you have good credit and it could go up to like 20 something percent. When I moved to the US, I did not have a credit score. Not having a credit score is actually worse than having a bad credit score. Mm-hmm. And so I had to build up my credit score out of nowhere. When people have either bad or low credit score, what they do is they get credit cards which are almost prepaid. As right. in, as in secured cards. Secu- yeah, exactly. I still have one of those. They're about to like change it over for a real one. <laughs> those are credit cards where instead of being on credit, you actually put upfront the amount that uh, you'd be using. So for example, you send in a thousand dollars, and so that means that the, the secured credit card that you use will have a limit of up to a thousand dollars. It's kind of like a collateral in case you go over it. It's like and the Starbucks card. Right. Yeah, basically, it's like instead of credit cards, it's a Starbucks card. The downside of that is, as uh, you know, uh, there are no positive in terms of points or anything like that. So I definitely recommend, from my own experience, building my credit from nothing to really look at every year where your credit is is at, and then figure out if it's worth it to switch to a, a better card. And that's not to say uh, that you should jump credit card from credit card, but. Um, it is important to understand that credit, credit score, I should say, your credit score is going to evolve uh, as time goes on. Mm. Uh, in case you don't know, every year you can check your credit score online for free. It's like federally mandated that uh, there's a website that you can put in the in the reference links on the podcast. Basically, every year you can check for free at least once uh, your credit score. And well, now I, they have creditkarma.com, which is totally free. And I credit think Karma, you, yeah. I don't think you're limited to like one time. You're not limited, but Credit Karma uh, doesn't give you the... Yeah, it's not all three of them, right? It's yeah, like it's not all three two. of them. And it's, it's kind of like a variant of what the actual scores oh, I see. are. Okay. And this is from the source. You know, it's like Experian right. or whoever right. it is. And you get the actual uh, credit score. Mm-hmm. And off of that, I think it's, it's worth gauging whether or not it's worth it to you to get a credit card that works for you instead of against you. And I think security credit cards are good up to a point where it's kind of like a crutch where, you know, it helps you walk for a while, but then once you can walk, then you shouldn't still be using crutches. Are there any credit card companies that have like a bad reputation that you should avoid? I, I know I don't know anything about them, but I know that Capital One constantly sends me things and I have like zero credit scores. <laughs> oh, really? I would avoid or be wary of using store credit cards like a best buy card or something Mm. i know sometimes when you sign up they'll give you a discount or like one year zero interest but if you don't pay it off in full then you'll be billed like some crazy high interest rate for the whole purchase even if you've paid off like 90 percent of it so if you're really good about paying everything off then maybe but i don't like to have too many credit cards i have two i have a capital one and like my amazon card and then that's it and another thing is like I don't use my ATM card as a credit card, even though you can. Um, I just feel like there's more uh, security issues or not not security issues. There's more 
if you have credit card fraud, I feel like a regular credit card would be more helpful versus oh, yeah. them accessing oh, you mean your actual bank account and like taking getting the funds back. Versus, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. why like debit cards are dangerous that way too. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, where, that's what I mean. I, I don't, gone, I don't use debit cards except to get cash, and I almost right. never use cash. Interesting. I'm with uh, Schwab. That's like one mm-hmm. of my banks, and they only have a debit card, mm-hmm. which I use for most of my transactions, mm-hmm. and they've been really useful when I've had an issue with it. Unlike Capital One, which I'm also with, uh, with whom I've had many credit card issues. But uh, yeah, I guess it depends. I- I'll definitely not advise you to go to Wells Fargo, given yeah. uh, the recent news. Oh about- I bank with yeah. Wells Fargo. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. I would switch. <laughs> Uh, so moving on from credit cards, you mentioned loans for cars and things like that. What's the best way to approach financing in that? So if you need to buy a car or lease a car or something, they're going to look at your credit. And even like jobs will check your credit score sometimes to see what kind of person you are. So it, it is important. And later on, if you ever want to buy a house, it's going to be important. Um, even renting, don't they look at your credit score? Mm-hmm. They do. Yeah. 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 So it, it is an important thing to keep track of when you're going to buy. I don't know. I, I like to spend just as little as possible you're very frugal I'm, i am I'm, I'm really frugal in general like i don't like to borrow money more than i have to so i guess put down a decent down payment as long as you can afford it the larger the the down payment you make right. whether on your house on your car whatever it is the lower the interest rate will be or the lower the interest amount you'll be spending right. down the line right so as the long as you upfront can cost. exactly so i think that's like the biggest from my own experience like the biggest uh cost is since you are going to be paying interest rates anyways uh you might as well leverage those to your advantage by putting up as much of a down payment you can afford Ford mm-hmm. up front. But again, I think it's like the breakdown is it should be based on what you can afford on, on a monthly basis um, compared to the, the salary you make or the amount of money you have in savings. But I know like some people will lease a car because it's cheaper. The right. It's cheaper versus buying that same car. I don't like the idea of leasing because you're never done, right? The lease ends and they have to lease again mm-hmm. or at some point you're going to have to buy. Um, I drove an old Hyundai Elantra for 12 years and I paid it off in five. So then I had seven years of zero car payment, but it was a really crappy car. So. <laughs> no, I did the same thing with my car when I first moved here. I looked into the prices for renting and that sort of thing, and I bought like a, a used car secondhand. And within, I think, like the first twelve months, I had paid off what I'd spent on it compared yeah, to having great. rented. So it's like you know, and in both cases, you guys own something now. You can right. either you know trade it or upgrade it or yeah. whatever it is. Even if it's a complete write off, you're still in the positive. Write off, yeah. The only time I think it makes sense to to lease is if you own if you incorporate yourself and you can write off that uh, monthly lease payment as an expense because i know several people who do that and then Mm -hmm. it makes sense now we've talked about budgeting the money that you already have in terms of you know housing medical insurance like those kinds of living expenses that are Mm -hmm. building up monthly to monthly but what if you have a little surplus where should you be putting that kind of money towards you right so hopefully you have a surplus at the end of hopefully every month and you're not going more and more into debt if you are you need to stop the bleeding and that's why you need to track what you're spending um once you get to at least even i feel like the first thing you should do is pay off credit card debt or any sort of high interest debt. So let's say you're paying 14% on, you know, whatever your credit card balance is to use that money more wisely would mean you would have to make more than 14% on some sort of investment. And the chances, you know, there's no 100% way to do that. So the best use of that money is to pay off the debt, which is guaranteed 14 or 18 or 20% um, interest. So that's the first thing I would do and try to get that down as low as possible to zero as quickly as possible. And then let's say once you pay off your debt, I would start stockpiling cash for several months worth of expenses. So that depends on your job and your situation. If you have a spouse who has a full-time job, your cushion probably doesn't need to be as much. 
if you're alone and you don't have any family here and I don't know, you have health issues, then you'll probably need a bigger cushion. If you're a PA working commercial, then you're going week to week with different jobs, you'll need a bigger cushion. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think the rule of thumb I've heard was uh, three times your monthly salary or whatever that represents. If you spend or make about $2,000, then that cushion that should be put aside should be around like $6,000, for example. So if something happens to you and you are either out of work or you have medical expenses that mm-hmm. build up, then at least you have that cushion of immediately accessible cash that you can dip into, which I think is very different from you know investments or other yeah. things. Before, which, before you're investing, yeah. first pay off your debt and then stockpile some cash exactly. for emergency. Uh, so speaking of investments, um, I guess we can talk a little bit about that. Uh, although I did want to bring up a quote from the, the show Atlanta on FX that I was watching the other week. And uh, Donald Glover's character says, uh, see, I'm poor, Darius, and poor people don't have time for investments because poor people are too busy trying not to be poor. I need to eat today, not in September. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> true. Did you guys see that YouTube video of the kids with the marshmallow test? What? Do no. oh. you know what this is? No. So I think they did this oh, like in yeah, the 50s or something, but they, they did a more recent version. So they put like a five-year-old kid in a room and they give him like a giant marshmallow. Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And they tell the kid, if you don't eat this in like five minutes or whatever, um, you'll get another marshmallow. And you see these kids like struggling to have some discipline to not eat it. And they're like rubbing their face against it and smelling it. And then finally, if they wait, they double it. So... Um, when they originally did the test, the people, the kids who could wait ended up being like way richer than the kids who could not wait. Mm. Oh, wow. So it's just impulse control and having long-term goals and being able to make those sacrifices. It's the same thing with like dieting and exercising. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Like long-term. And even those things, same thing. You have to keep track of what you're eating or, you know, your calories and stuff. It's the basic same pr- principles. In the Atlanta's world, I feel like the, as you said, you, you first got to like stop the bleeding. You got to deal with yeah. the debt that you have first before yeah. it builds up and builds up and, and buries you basically yeah. uh, before you think about investing. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the, the basics about investing? If someone comes to you and is like, okay, I know nothing about investing, yeah. uh, give me the one-on-one, uh, what would you say the to them? The easiest thing would be your company's 401k, but I know not everyone has that option. Not everyone works at a full-time job that offers that. Um, but if you have it, you should definitely um, do it, especially if they match because that's just free money for you and it lowers your taxes, like what's billable at the end of the year, right? Is the 401k for retail? Retirement or is it, it is for retirement. Okay. It is for retirement. Um, so you cannot take that money out until you're, what, 67 right. and a half or whatever it is. But what about like, I won't say short-term investing, but just like more flexible me- term, yeah. yeah, Right. So it, did, it depends on what your timeline is. I remember I worked with someone who was asking me what she should do with like $10,000 or whatever. And she wanted to use that in like a year or two to like fix up her house. So if your timeline is like one or two years, you can't do something too risky because, you know, there's fluctuations. So you don't know what's going to happen. So it's probably better just to keep it cash or something much more conservative. So after the 401, I would probably suggest a Roth IRA, um, especially if you're young. So a 401k, let's say you make, I don't know, $50,000 a year and you put away $5,000 to your 401k, that means you're taxed only for $45,000. For a Roth IRA, if you put $5,000 into a Roth IRA, it's after-tax money, so you're already taxed. Yeah. But then when you take that money out, you don't have to pay any taxes, so that $5,000 could turn into twenty, and you don't have to pay any right. taxes because you already paid when you first put it in. Mm. And it's also limited. I think it's $5,000 a year, I believe, or there's yeah, some, they, some they, limit to it. I think it. they try to raise the limits every once in a while, so I'm, I'm not sure what the numbers are now. Right. Um, but the 
the Roth is the thing I would do right after uh, the 401. And if you don't have a 401, you should definitely do a Roth. Especially if you're young and you're a PA, yeah. uh, I definitely suggest the number one priority should be in terms of like long-term retirement investment. Like I think the Roth IRA is like the way to go because Absolutely. of compound interest. Yeah, simply compound put. interest. And you don't, the assumption is you're going to be making more money later than you are now. Right. And so you're going to be taxed more at a higher rate. So this way you pay lower taxes right now and then later when you take it out, you pay zero. And then also the thing with the Roth that is different from a 401 is you can take the money out under certain situations. So like, I think you could use it for education and to buy a house, which is what I did actually. What are your thoughts on a stock investment? So I actually like stocks. Um, I don't like mutual funds because I don't like fees. I had this bad experience when I was young. It was, I don't remember which... It was Morgan Stanley, I remember, some idiot. He made some <laughs> horrible decisions. I told him to sell, and he didn't, and then it cost me money, which at the time was probably like $50, but it made me so mad. I'm like, I can make the same mistakes for free, so I'll just teach myself. Um, so I like picking individual stocks versus mutual funds again. Fees, and then there's more, there is more risk, but then there's also more potential reward like a mutual fund might move, I don't know, 5 10% in a year, but the stock could potentially double depending on. Right. Mm-hmm. Of course, it could also, some companies go out of business, like Washington Mutual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on, a, on value investing? Because, I mean, for my own personal, you know, stock portfolio mm-hmm. and things like that, I do love the, this idea of value investing, which if you don't know, dear listeners, is when the stock that you want to purchase is actually valued lower than its intrinsic book value. Um, so that means if the company were to go bottoms up, the, the assets that they would sell would at least make you break even, if not make money. Right. From they that. would sell all their equipment and exactly. computers and then they would, that value would be at least what it is currently. Currently. Pricing. Yeah. Do you feel um, like that's the main way to go or are they are? Any- I haven't done that too much. I like more tech just because I worked in design and like graphics and stuff. So computers. So I liked Apple and Google and those kinds of things. I usually tend to buy in companies that I like and know so that it doesn't seem like research. So I'll, I'll already know some stuff about, you know, whatever the next iPhone is, but I won't know anything about some biotech drug that's coming out for cancer. I have zero idea and I'm lazy, so I'm not going to research that to the same extent. So I would start, you know, just what products or companies do you like and do a little research and follow the stock price and see... And then, you know, see what happens and invest a little bit at a time. And, and diversify, right? I think that's the key. It is. But I did the opposite. I put everything <laughs> into like a few, which is super risky, but then it ended up working out. But yeah, that's probably not the right way to do it. I mean, they find a few, like three or is yeah, it more? three to five. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty low. Versus like 10, 50 then at that point. So <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I wouldn't necessarily, yeah. when I say diversify. Don't do I, what I do. I, don't do what well, I mean, do. I also went the way you did where I don't know if initially, especially when you're first starting out and again, you're like assistant or lower level and you don't right. have like that much money and you really want to concentrate your money into very focused amount of stock, then you probably are better off diversifying with five stocks, which is still more than one stock or one company. There's definitely a correlation, as you brought up, between the knowledge that you have as a person and in your career in the entertainment industry, for example, and your knowledge of Time Warner Cable or HBO, which is, you know, Netflix and all these different companies versus, you know, biotech. And so I think you can put to use that knowledge and figure out what is right for you. 
how do you make those like risk assessments? Like you're obviously taking on a certain amount of risk that you're happy with. Yeah. How do you kind of like decide what's acceptable and what's not? It depends. So I won't invest money that I know I'm going to need anytime soon. So I guess I kind of assume like, am I okay with this money going to zero? Hmm. <laughs> Knowing that, you know, I'll have plenty of time to get out of it and, you know, sell it at a loss if I have to. But am I okay with that? And if I'm not, then I won't. I'll just keep it as cash. The younger you are, the riskier you can, right. you can get because right. theoretically you'd be Things making can, more. Yeah, you can later. take chances and then you can recover even if you go bankrupt or whatever. Um, but going back to diversifying your portfolio, besides individual stocks, you can invest in ETFs, which are sort of like mutual funds, except that they follow like a certain sector, let's say. So like uh, tech or biotech. So I might not know the difference between Allergan versus biogen or something but i I feel maybe i like that as a industry then i could just buy that etf versus one specific company i think there's one for like social media stocks oh really yeah so if you don't want to if you don't know if you should buy twitter versus linkedin or facebook you can just buy that which is a (laughs) basket of companies in one industry um if that's what you want to do and then those fees are a lot lower than like a managed fun where a person mm. makes decisions and you pay them more but you still get the the incentive of like focusing your investment in a specific niche that hopefully you either know about or are interested in or see a positive outlook going forward right when people start looking at individual stocks a lot of times people think if a stock is really expensive like google which is 800 dollars a share they think it's not going to move up a lot because it's already so expensive and they might pick something like a five dollar stock or ten dollar stock thinking it's more likely to move up, but that is not true. So don't be afraid of bigger companies and more expensive stocks like Apple or Google, Netflix, Amazon, any of those. It's funny, my cousin was really high on Tesla before Mm -hmm. the first car even came out. And he invested in Tesla, and uh, he's pretty happy now. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned real estate that you went and uh, purchased a house. What's that kind of like decision making process? Is when should you look to buy versus rent and all that sort of thing? That's hard to say. I'm assuming if you're listening to the podcast, you want to write in TV. So if you don't already live in LA, you'll want to at some point. And LA is expensive even to rent to buy. I just bought a condo in the valley, not like a house house, but. I waited until I saved up 20% to put for the down payment, which is like the standard amount, because that way you don't have to pay um, PMI, which I think stands for like property mortgage insurance. If you only put like 5% down or 2% down, then you don't have enough at stake. So the bank thinks you can just walk away and not pay if something goes sour. Mm. So that way you have to pay to carry this extra interest that'll cover in case that happens to you. Um, yeah, so I waited until I had 20%. And I actually only was able to save that 20% because like I said, I'm not rich um, by scrapping and saving for like 10 years and then putting it in stocks. And then that grew to the amount where I could sell a chunk of that to pay for the down payment. Mm. Right. What is the average kind of down payment you might need on a condo? I guess it depends on what area of town. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, so. I feel like a two bedroom condo might be, I don't know, 400,000 and up. Mm-hmm. So a one bedroom might be 350 maybe depending on what area. So if it's let's say, let's say it's $350,000 for a one bedroom condo, that would be $70,000 for a down payment mm-hmm. um ideally. I mean, you could get a FHA which is a first time homeowner's loan and you only need like 2.5% or something, mm-hmm. but then you will have to pay that PMI extra fee every month and that won't go away mm-hmm. until the value goes above a certain amount, the value right. of your property. And then for like condos or townhouses, you have to pay an HOA, homeowners association that pays for like the gardening and maintenance. 
even at those uh, lower down payment rates, you're still going to be paying those the back end of the interest rate anyways because you only put yeah. down like a minimum yeah. amount of payment. Yeah, you're paying, so, let's say, $70,000 down on a $350,000 place. That's $280,000 of a loan you're taking out and paying right now, what, like 3.5%? Versus like uh, if you only put down 20000 on that $350,000, yeah, you'd be paying 330000 yeah. of that loan. Yeah, um, for 30 years. Much like in stock, you feel it's also about buying low and selling high or is there like See, a game the, on that level? The thing about stocks is you could go in and out because the market is so liquid. I could buy something and then 10 seconds later, I could change my mind and sell it. Like right. probably whatever the market price is. For a house to buy something just to get pre-approved on a loan will take months. And so it's harder to go in and out. Um, and so like I'm not into like flipping houses or, you know, it's not monopoly. So I, I'm just happy just to have one place that I live in because I'm going to have to pay rent anyway. So I might as well yeah, put right. it down towards this and build equity. But it all comes down to that down payment. So if I didn't have this place, I would be spending almost the same amount paying rent for like same size place. The New York Times came out, I think this year or last year, with a kind of like an online calculator to figure out based on the fees you'd be paying in HOA fees mm-hmm. and uh, interest rates versus the monthly payment of a rented apartment mm-hmm. and the monthly salary that you make and so on, if it's worth it for you to be buying or if right. it's worth it for you to be renting and what's that break-even point. Yeah. Um, so I think that's like one of the most useful kind of tools available online mm-hmm. on that front. Although I feel like, I mean, the rule of thumb is always to be, you know, owning something versus renting something. Right, just in general. Um, in general. Mm-hmm. But in LA, that's like almost impossible to do. <laughs> it is really hard. Yeah. The first place I got, I went in with my brother and we split it. And then later we sold it and then we just got our own place. Oh, wow. If only I had a brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, and I also know friends who got together, but that's risky because yeah. it hmm. didn't work out. And I think two of the five people, they went in, went in on something and then the two people like lost their jobs and they're like, we can't pay. So that affected everyone's credit. So let's say you're a production assistant and you don't make much money. And then on top of that, you don't even know if uh, three months from now you're going to have work Mm -hmm. Um, beyond rent and beyond food. Where do you think the priority should be? Do you think it's worth it? to be, you know, spending money on those drinks and those and those networking for the benefit long term? Or do you think spending that money is actually a short term negative effect? That's hard to say, because you could convince yourself like, oh, this is for business. And then you just get drunk every night and then take an Uber <laughs> right. home. I, I, don't know, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like there are would be ways to network without having to, to spend money. But then things like festivals, and let's say contests, right, like submitting your script to a bunch of contests, like, how many um because on one hand it, you should see it as a business expense marketing or, or whatever you want to call it and so i think you should do that but then if it's that or do i pay off my credit card or eat i mean I don't yeah know. the truth should not be between like eating and yeah. sending a, a script to a contest but right. i think i think we did talk about in a previous episode about contrasting the different uh contests you know, even fellowships where mm-hmm. you'd be spending money and seeing what's the value you'd be getting out of it. And I think the number one comment that we we got out of it was that you shouldn't be entering a contest based on the monetary value you'd be taking out of it, right? right. But it should be about making contacts right. and, be, and building relationships. Right. So I think if you base it off of that, obviously the the breakdown of like, if I'm spending $60 on a contest and I'm meeting three people, then you can't really break that process down. Like you right. don't even know if that's going to be worth it. Yeah. But um, like place a monetary value on like a, a contest or a friend, right? Yeah. Like, I feel like you should just have, I don't know, like a certain amount set aside for just mm-hmm. contests or networking in general every right. year. But then it's something like Austin is bigger if you actually plan to go. 
you know, paying for a flight in a hotel for like a week is, it's not cheap. Mm -hmm. Or if you're a filmmaker, if you're a director or something and you want to make a short film or hire people for a production, I mean, that could be thousands of dollars. So, you know, do you want to take that hit? Is it worth it to you? Yeah. What was your experience uh, during the fellowships? Because I know some, some fellowships are either paid, some are unpaid, and then yeah. some are like Nickelodeon full time or full time. Yeah. To go in every day. So, what are your thoughts on that? The breakdown between uh, between that and and your own experience. Well, for me, like it was a pay cut because I was working as like an art director in advertising, so it was a big pay cut. But for me, it was no question. I mean, of course, I'm gonna take it, and that's why my mom cried when I told her. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was planning just in case I did get in, I would be taking hits. So I socked away more cash than usual in hopes of getting it so that I could become poorer. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> what are some ways you've kind of networked without having to like spend money on drinks or go beyond your way to uh, spend money on, on someone else? I oh hate alcohol. Like I get red and I get a headache, my body's allergic, so that's not an issue for me. And I'm super antisocial, so I, I think my <laughs> expense is like zero. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I, I feel there's a social pressure when you go out to have a drink in your hand, but I don't think there's a shame in like grabbing a, a glass of water at the bar and you can still go to those mixers for free and have a glass yeah. in your hand if you need to for like social anxiety or, or, or something like that. And I'll just meet talk. up with people I know for coffee or something, you know, and I'm, I'm, I have my writer's group and stuff like that. I guess there's like online as well. Like it doesn't cost you any money exactly. to sit on Twitter. your computer and yeah, tweet at people or yeah, <laughs> it costs the, uh, the atom of electricity that I <laughs> computer. I feel like the big thing for me was like networking and then spending money on like, like how much would that cost though? For networking, when you go out, you sometimes you do get a Lyft or an Uber or something. Right. And so as has been mentioned, I recently sprained my ankle and I'm still dealing with that. And that means I can't drive right now. And the cost of Lyft and Uber have been accumulated because when I meet someone, it's going to be on the other side of town. And even like a short Lyft drive is still, you know, $5 doesn't seem that bad, but when it's like 10 $5 your eyes, that's mm -hmm. $50. Mm -hmm. And so what I've been doing was either uh, having people meet me closer to my area where I can try to walk or even take the bus, believe it or not, or even, you know, use uh, coupon codes or discounts. So like, for example, if you're on T-Mobile, uh, this is a fun fact. If you're a T-Mobile user, there's a thing called T-Mobile Tuesdays. And it's a free app, official T-Mobile app that gives Every Tuesday, free stuff. A lot of those Tuesdays, they give out a $15 off coupon for a Lyft ride. Uh, and so you can ask a friend who may not be using theirs, and then you have your round trip for free on a Tuesday. So that's an example of what uh, I try to use uh, to like limit my spending. I have uh, T-Mobile. I'm going to have to download this. It's definitely useful. I, I feel like one of my biggest expenses is definitely like eating out. I yeah. am Food's not, a big thing. Yeah, that's what and I'm curious to ask you about. a lot of people call themselves foodies. Luckily, I have no taste. And low standards. <laughs> I mean, if you would say in like a healthy budget, how much should you allocate for free? Is this an individual thing or, you know? It like is because I think if I had to, I could probably get by with like 300 a month for mm -hmm. my entire food, right? Groceries going out. But that could easily double if I'm going out and I decide to treat myself to, you know, nicer meals and all these restaurants and food LA or whatever. It's really easy. It's kind of amazing how easily it adds up. You know, you go have lunch with someone and Drinks, then that becomes like $15. Then you get a coffee as $5. Tips. Like, you know. Like, I can't be one of those people that say, I'm going to spend zero money and eat oatmeal and cook every meal and take it to work. But, you know, I'm not going to get like $80 meals and bottles of wine that often either. Again, that, that's why I think it's so, so important to track everything for months, for a couple months so that you could see your patterns and then you could make more conscious decisions. 
even if you're not going to be spending every day cooking for yourself, you can still make some effort and during the weekend to like make a plan for X amount of days during that week. What is the small step you can take today to limit the eating out or lim- limit the spending that you'll be making that week? Even if it's cutting back one dinner, that's still going to be what? $20 potentially a week. Mm-hmm. So $20 times 50, yeah. you know, that's like an insane amount right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, just off of one dinner that you would not be spending yeah. uh, money on. I think for me is as bad as I am with constantly eating out and, and not buying groceries and making stuff for myself. One thing that I found that really helps is just having a bunch of breakfast food available, like cereal and, you know, eggs and bread and things like that, because it doesn't cost that much money to keep that stuff around. But if you were to try and run and grab something from even Starbucks or, yeah. you know, a diner or something in the morning that's a huge expense compared to like the 50 cents or something it might cost you for a bowl full of cereal so Mm -hmm. i feel like you want to develop good habits with money especially when you're poor i think a lot of people think like oh i'll figure this stuff out or care or make an effort once i'm rich enough or make Mm -hmm. once i get into my real career or whatever but if you have bad habits and then just increasing your money only magnifies your bad habits so you'll buy a more expensive car than you can afford or you know take on like buy a house for with a mortgage you can't afford versus mm-hmm. right now you might be going out for a $50 meal versus 20 like it'll just your habits will be the same so you want good habits now where if you mess up it's not going to ruin you I've definitely been guilty of that thinking I'm like oh one day when I you know, um, making this amount of money, then I'll finally, you know, be able to look after all my expenses properly. Until then, whatever, you know. But yeah. I think it's, you're right. It's going to grow with you and it's just going to keep being a problem unless you break those habits. Yeah. And if you're thinking like one day you'll hit the payday and then you'll pay off all of your lifetime worth of debt at once, like mm-hmm. that's a big risk to take. That's a big risk. And then by the time you, maybe you reach that point, then the interest rate exactly. is going to be so high yeah. that you'll be, you know, spending your money on the interest rate instead yeah. of just the cost. Not every show it's going to be a 24 episode season you might get put on like a six episode show and that's not going to last you a year yeah like a niche cable like half hour <laughs> yeah. yeah so so who knows so you gotta you gotta budget your stuff yeah i feel like that's the thing is a lot of people look at the money that writers make and like oh that's so much and then they don't realize that that's for like 12 to 20 weeks in a year and you don't know that you're immediately going to get on another show and right. work the rest of the year so maybe that's going to have to last you that whole time like plus your agent manager yeah all those fees attorney they, they they all take a cut if you have a writing partner that goes half before taxes so have fun with that what are your thoughts on dealing with with that kind of a long-term sum payment because there's the illusion that you have even if it's not a hundred thousand dollars a single script fee is still in the tens of thousands of dollars potentially so how do you deal with that substantial amount of money that enters your bank account how do you break down into a budget that that kind of like sum of money that's not going to be a weekly thing i mean i'm boring because i wouldn't do anything with it i would just pay off all of my credit card debt and then student loans or whatever and then if I had any left over, then I would probably, you know, treat myself to a little something. But I would just stockpile cash because you don't know when that's coming again until you get so much where you know you don't have to work for like years at a time. Right. Until you're in the millions, probably. Yeah. Hundreds right? of thousands. Yeah. Uh, so paying off debt is inherently more valuable than just having the money sitting around as that stockpile. Or what do you think yeah. the balance is? Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to pay off your debt to the point where you have so little in your bank account where you might get like an overdraft fee because then that's shooting yourself in the foot. Um, so I would keep a little bit in cash um, no matter what. But then with any extra cash, I would definitely pay off debt. That would be the number one goal. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about like student loans, like the first thing, like high interest credit card stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can, you know, refinance your student loans 
loans or car payments or whatever it is. How flexible should people be with their money when they're starting to go up the ladder and start to get more money comparatively to like being an assistant? Right. So I would imagine like once you get staffed on several shows, like the likelihood is you'll get staffed again, right? I feel like it's hardest to break in and it's the most unstable at that point. But once you have these working relationships, I feel like it's a little more reliable. And then plus you're making more, so you would have right. more saved up. But if the, that first job, I wouldn't change my lifestyle on whatever that first payout is. I would try to keep it as much as the same as possible and just save up. What's the tipping point, do you feel? For me, it would be like, I don't know, like a year or so where I don't have to work, where I know I don't have to work and right. I wouldn't like go into debt. But that's just me. Everyone, like, you know, I don't have a family to take care of. I don't have long-term medical issues that I have to worry about and pay for. So everyone's coming from a different place. So I know a lot of writers tend to create their own cooperation uh, and loan themselves out from that for the purposes of not having to have taxes withheld and, and all that sort of thing. Do you have any advice about that or know anything about that process? I don't know any writer to do that. I know an editor who does that, who works in reality. And so, yeah, he incorporated himself and he hired an accountant to take care of this. And so all of the money he makes goes into that corporation. And then from there, anything he buys that's work-related will get taken out of that mm -hmm. account first. And then he'll pay himself the minimum he needs to to get by. So then the income tax he pays um, is just on the amount that he pays himself. Where does the leftover money go to? It stays in the company for growing the company. And, uh, you know, whatever work expenses might come out of that. He has to travel for something that he's not going to get reimbursed for. If he has to buy a new, you know, camera gear or whatever, he can just buy that with uh, money that doesn't already get taxed. So you'd be cutting the middleman in the process of deducting from your taxes uh, business expenses? Um, I'm not I, I'm not sure. I'd I think from the little bit that I heard about it, it's sort of like the money that you would make from that corporation being uh, the, the mem like the member of that corporation, the, like the sole founder or whatever, you're entitled to like 100% of the profits or something like that. So then you're like the money you're paying yourself is drawing off against the expected profits and for some reason that kind of like saves you money on, on taxes. Hmm. So I don't know a great deal about it. I was hoping maybe you could shed some more light onto yeah, it. Yeah, I, I haven't looked into But it myself. seems like a common thing that people tend to do once they're making enough money is to create this corporation because it works better for them than mm -hmm. being an individual. Probably because, let's say you get paid directly, like, I don't know, $200,000 a year, you probably don't need all that um, to live. And then so you're paying taxes on money that you're not spending right away versus keeping it in a company that won't, that, that'll get taxed at a lower rate. And then you could use that lower tax rate to buy stuff for your company mm -hmm. and to, you know, pay other people or whatever it is. That's like a fine line between the expense that would be worth it to you. So like you send, you know, a script to a, a contest where that's obviously a business expense. But if you spend money on food, there's a weird dilemma where if I'm meeting you for dinner, then is that a business expense because we're kind of like talking shop or is it just like dinner? It is easier for bookkeeping too, if you have a separate account associated with the business. Um, but yeah, I, that's why I don't think it makes sense until you make enough money where because you have to pay for this. You have to file like quarterly statements and stuff and uh, pay f to incorporate yourself. Yeah, I think it usually requires like a business manager or an accountant or something to be looking after it as well a lot of the time. So I can't wait until we incorporate into Paper Team Inc. <laughs> <laughs> Circling back to the, the tax aspect of it, what do you feel are some tax deductible expenses that people are not necessarily using to their own advantage? I'm not sure because I'm definitely not an accountant, but I personally would probably write off like Netflix subscriptions 
things. You mentioned before, like meals. I had a boss who would take, who would keep the stubs from going to see movies because he was a, a yeah. writer and director, and so he would research that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Postage, percentage of internet and cell phone stuff like that. But whatever the standard deduction is, if your itemized deductions don't match up, if they don't exceed that um, standardized deduction, it might not be worth it. And it's just more headache and more complex filing and paying more in accountant fees. Mm-hmm. All right. Do you pay for an accountant or do you deal with taxes yourself? I don't because I, I have to pay for my condo and there's like more right. stuff. So it's just easier to pay someone else. I just feel like it's so important to track your stuff. I mean, that's the first thing. It's it, it's free to do. It doesn't cost you anything. So I would recommend doing that and just see, just assess where you are and then figure out if you want to get more into it or if you feel you're fine with where you're at. Do you have any interesting resources to recommend? Um, I think mint.com is really good and you should check it out. If you're having trouble with a budget, I think there's something called You Need a Budget. That's or what I was going to say. Yeah. There's, there's an app called uh, You Need a Budget that's on Steam. Um, and I think the most interesting aspect of You Need a Budget is you will be manually either entering your expenditures or importing them from your bank. It doesn't do it automatically like Mint. And the reason why that is, is because it forces you to like look at your actual expenses and break them down into different categories. Yeah, Mint isn't really meant for budgeting. It's just like tracking, even though they have budgeting features, but that's not its primary purpose. You Need a Budget to me is like one of the most useful apps. If you've never done any budget and it's really intuitive the way it's set up where you, you know, you put in your expenses and it gives you flow charts and whatever, but it also gives you the opportunity to like set up a budget where you get to break down. Okay. I'm going to be spending a hundred dollars a month on internet and, uh, and then another $30 on Netflix or whatever it is. You budget everything. And down the line, after a few months of using it, then you can kind of figure out ways of getting a surplus out of your money. You know, every dollar needs to have a job. It's kind of like that motto. Even if you have an extra $10 a month after paying everything, then that $10 should not be wasted. It should be put maybe to your credit card debt Mm -hmm. or uh, even to that uh, cushion that you mentioned earlier uh, because it accumulates over time. And then when you make a budget, I feel like sometimes people are all gung-ho and they imagine this like really sparse life for themselves. they're depriving themselves and that is not going to work in the long term just like you can't starve yourself for a diet right yeah yeah exactly it's not about like starving yourself or uh restraining yourself necessarily it's just being aware yeah of you have to be aware and make better decisions um, although they changed their formula where it used to be one fee app that you'd buy but now they're doing a recurring monthly fee so i don't know if i necessarily recommend that but if you can find the older software now there's another resource that i did want to bring up because we talked about investing and one of the most informative books that I have read about investment uh, was this book called The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. Classic. And uh, I definitely recommend if you are at all interested in uh, investing and uh, learning more about that concept uh, to like check out that book. And I know even Warren Buffett recommends the book. So if Warren Buffett recommends something, right. I'm going to look at it. Oh, and as for like stocks, like if you feel too knowledgeable about stocks to pick individuals, individual stocks, you could just do an index fund. I think that's the standard advice that people give. So that tracks the entire stock market or like the S&P 500. I think that's the, the typical benchmark. And so that way it is going to move up and down less. So it's a little more secure, but it's better than just having cash in the long run. I don't have any resources because I'm terrible with my money. So don't listen to anything I say. There's a book called The Millionaire Next Door that I really liked. And those were um, like case studies 
and stories from people that created their own wealth. They weren't, um, they didn't inherit their money. And so they explore the, the common themes between how they all did that. I feel like uh, after listening to this podcast, Nick, you're going to be a millionaire pretty soon, right? <laughs> well, hopefully. I mean, that was the plan. 10%, 10% for me. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we would like to thank you, Keong, for joining us for this awesome episode. Thanks for having and me. And thank you, dear listeners, for uh, listening to us. Uh, once again, we would love to get some more reviews uh, on our iTunes. So you can go to paperteam.co slash iTunes. That's dot co. Um, we love reading them. They are very, very nice. And uh, <laughs> we, we love you forever. So please continue to do so. XOXO. As always, I'm on the Twitterverse at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Do you have a Twitter, Keong? I do. What okay. is it? Uh, Mr. Underscore Keon Kim. Uh, if you have any feedback, thoughts, questions, opinions, uh, hate mail for any of our many enemies, uh, you can send that to ask at paperteam.co. That's A-S-K at paperteam.co. Also, uh, tax returns. I think uh, you can send us your tax returns. Uh, Donald Trump, we're looking at you. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, another <laughs> enemy. Ooh. And uh, next week, we will be talking about the writer's mindset. Uh, we already talked in another episode about the outlining process and so on. So this is more about the internal writing process. So procrastination, dealing with time management, uh, and so on. Zen of screenwriting. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. See you then.